Today, I introduce you to my supposed-to-be silent partner. We go further back in human history than we've ever gone before. We get a lesson in biology that's filled with good news, and we discover that if you want a better perspective on life, get some office supplies. All on the way to answering the question, who framed you? Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. Okay, there's someone I want to tell you about, and she's my mostly silent partner here on Sky Pilot. Her name is Tonks. Yes, if you've read the Harry Potter novels, just like the Harry Potter character. And she's our dog. She often sits at my feet while I record my podcasts. Matter of fact, I have a bed for her right next to my desk. And she'll sit quietly as I write. But strangely, as often as not, as soon as I begin to record, for some reason, she will inexplicably pick that moment to awaken to become fidgety, to bark, to whine, to bang around the office, to make some noise that she wasn't making before. Matter of fact, right now as I'm recording, she started to snore. She never snores. But in these moments when she gets bouncing around the office, I'll try to settle her down, and sometimes it works, but if I can't, I occasionally have to lock her out of the studio, which she does not understand at all. If you visit my podcast Facebook page, you'll see two whimsical cartoon pictures of Tonks and me on the Sky Pilot Faith Quest journey. I tell you about Tonks for two reasons. First, because although for the most part I edit her sound out of the podcast, she's here for every episode, so to me she feels like she's a part of the podcast, and I just thought I'd introduce her to you. Second, I want to use her for a size reference. She's a brown lab, or maybe she's a Chesapeake Bay Retriever. Whatever she is, she's a mutt rescue dog. She's not big. I'd call her a medium-sized dog, and she probably is just around about 50 pounds. For comparison, a large German Shepherd can approach 100 pounds. And she's 13 years old and has always been a very quiet, passive dog. But in her old age, she's getting a little skittish. She'll occasionally now become even what I would call a little assertive when someone enters our living space. If it's, say, a plumber, he or she will often backtrack until I put Tonks away. As I said, as dogs go, she's not huge, but even a barking 50-pound dog can still be quite intimidating. So once again, for a frame of reference, she's 50 pounds. A German Shepherd can grow to 100 pounds. A large male African lion can grow to 500 pounds. And all those are frames of reference, so you get this next one. The largest of the prehistoric cats, the Smilodon as it's called, could grow to be as large as 800 to even 1,000 pounds. Now, I'm a little over six feet tall, and this cat's top of the head would have come up to my chin. I tell you all of this because although the Smilodon doesn't exist anymore. Oh, I should tell you, we tend to call this enormous cat a saber-toothed tiger. 
Anyway, although it doesn't exist anymore, it did live concurrently with our prehistoric ancestors. Now, if you stop to think about our ancestors, they were not near as tall as we are today. And putting that in perspective, you begin to have some sense of the dangerous world in which they lived. If you were one of our ancestors 20,000 years ago and you were out on the savanna collecting berries to eat and suddenly you heard the grass behind you rustle, there was a high probability that the rustling grass was just the wind. But there was also a high probability that ancestors who immediately allowed their imagination to take them to the worst possible scenario, a thousand-pound saber-toothed tiger lurking in the grass, well, that ancestor probably lived a lot longer, even though they were wrong the vast majority of time. Caution to the point of borderline paranoia is, well, it's a pretty useful survival mechanism. As our ancestors tried to survive the dangers of the world around them, it served them well. It allowed them to survive, and it allowed us to be here today. After that experience of the rustling grass on the savanna, we as humans, we don't tell the story later on as, well, I reacted with an abundance of caution. We tell the story to others and ourselves as the day we narrowly escaped being eaten. You could have been to that same place a hundred other days and successfully picked berries. Yet this one day, when we hear the grass rustle, we get spooked. And it's that memory our brain chooses to keep. Interestingly, humans have a tendency to weigh negative experiences as being far more important than positive ones. Even when the two events are of equal intensity, we choose to remember, dwell on, stew about that negative event. This is called, in psychology, the negativity bias. This tendency served us well as a survival mechanism in a world in which there were lots of physical dangers and real threats to survival. But for those of us who live in the modern mechanized world, this tendency towards a negativity bias, well, it does not serve us all that well any longer. We walk through life like we're covered in Velcro, and the things that are most likely to stick to that Velcro are those sticky, negative experiences. We collect so many of them that they slow us down, and then they begin to impede our lives because they build up until they are crowding even our visual field. We see the world framed by all of these collected negative experiences. Back in my middle school days, when pinball machines ruled the arcade, I was always fascinated by the people who were really good at them, and I was not. Those people were quick, focused, and surprisingly rough with the machine. And I guess that's why pinball companies put motion sensors in the games. If you move the game too much, then it shuts down and the word tilt was displayed. This word has come over to the word of poker. If a poker player loses a hand or a couple of hands and the experience of that loss begins to negatively affect future play, then the player is said to be playing on tilt. At this point, the person becomes 
too aggressive or too passive or radically switching between the two, which undermines their game. And they're now playing on tilt. Now, the reason why I tell you that is because what is interesting to me is that because we seem to be predisposed to go through our lives overstating the negative, undervaluing the positive, allowing our worldview to become clouded by those negative experiences, we then proceed through our own lives on some level of tilt. A number of years ago, a friend of mine told me a story about a conversation he had with his middle school-age son. His son asked him about how a baby is conceived. Now, he wasn't interested in the sex part. He literally wanted to know about the biology of an egg getting fertilized and how that works. So his father told him about tens of millions of sperm swimming to find that egg, and eventually one does. His son paused for a moment and said, Tens of millions? Mm-hmm. Just one egg? Mm-hmm. Just one of those tens of millions fertilizes the egg? Yep. Suddenly, his son jumped up out of his chair, threw his arms up over his head, and yelled, I won! Then he paused for a moment, got thoughtful, and then yelled, We all won! There seem to be two major learnings that I'm trying to put forward here. First, the world, more specifically your life, is probably not near as dangerous and filled with negative experiences as you perceive it to be. And second, you literally wouldn't be here if you weren't a winner. Often in my ministry, I've counseled people who've had a difficult experience, some tragedy or something happened in their life that's real, but they're keenly aware that the power of it has affected them to the point where they are living their life on tilt. And they come into my office wanting to regain some perspective, some joy in their life. One of the assignments I will give them is to get a large pack of post-it notes, a pen, and put those in their bathroom or next to their dresser mirror. The task will be to every day write something that gives you or has given you joy. Write that on a post-it note and then stick it on the mirror. The idea is simple. We are so good at collecting the negative that we begin to taint the way we see the world. So we need to change the visual field through which we see the world, or more importantly, change the visual field through which we see ourselves. If you do the exercise I'm talking about, you will eventually have filled the outside rim of your mirror with moments of blessing, happiness, and joy. Then when you approach that mirror to straighten your clothing or check your hair, you will literally be seeing yourself framed Framed not by the collected negativity of your life, but by the abundance of blessing you have received. The story of Scripture is the story of a loving God who formed creation to give us life and joy. This experience I use to get people to see themselves as framed by joy and wonder is not a metaphorical one. 
you and I awaken every day in a world which is filled with color, beauty, amazing sounds, and wonder that literally frames our lives in beautiful experiences. Beautiful experiences that mostly go unnoticed every moment of every day. But there are so many of them that are worth noticing. The laughter of a child, the smile on a friend's face, the orchid that started to bloom on our table, the sun streaming through our window, and even sometimes annoying but totally lovable way our dog suddenly gets excited for no reason. They're just a few of the thousands of blessings that surround and fill my life every day. What about, wait a minute, what about those moments of annoyance? Well, sometimes those things that really annoy me just kind of need a perspective change. They need a moment of realization. That guy at the stoplight who's blaring his music too loud through his car speakers, that guy used to drive me crazy. And then one day I had a change of perspective. I don't know why, but I was just sitting there. And I looked at him and I realized. Now, before I let it bother me, I realized that, you know what? That was me when I was 16 or 17 years old. I literally used to keep a cassette of the Doobie Brothers queued up to the song China Grove. Man, I love that song. When I pulled up to a stoplight, I would pop this cassette into the player, and I would blare this super cool song for everyone to hear. I really thought everyone was seeing me as amazing because this song was so amazing. Today, when I hear the guy playing his music too loud, it used to tick me off. Now it doesn't. Now it's actually kind of a moment of joy because I smile. That was me. I know exactly what he's doing. We have been created by a generous and loving God. We should spend our time in this life seeking, discovering, and sharing every bit of joy we can. Our lives are literally surrounded by it, each and every single moment. I'll leave you with a quote from the 126th chapter of the book of Psalms. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then it was said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for us, and we rejoice. That's all for today. On your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. I invite you to check me out on Facebook. Just search for Sky Pilot Faith Quest. And if you'd like to send me an email, get in touch with me. My email address is skypilot with three T's. That's S-K-Y-P-I-L-O-T-T-T at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Sky Pilot Faith Quest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions. <laughs>